Welcome to episode 71 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Andreas Carvalho, CEO at CMG Consulting, Professor of Innovation, Smart Grid Godfather, and author. We had some pretty bad audio problems during the podcast, but Andreas is so interesting and the content so good that I decided to publish our discussion in spite of the poor sound. Hey, I really did what I could. COVID infections are on the rise many places in the world, so please be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Please join me in the next few weeks when I promise to have better audio. I also have some great guests, including Yuka Kokonen, Chief EV Educator at Shift2 Electric, Peter Fox Penner, author of the widely acclaimed Smart Power and the newly released Power After Carbon, Enric Sala, National Geographic Explorer in Residence and author of The Nature of Nature, Alan Scheller-Wolf, professor at the Tepper School of Business at my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon University, and San Diego mayoral candidate and state assembly member Todd Gloria. As CEO of CMG, Andreas helps cities, utilities, enterprises, vendors, and startups. CMG provides strategy consulting and advisory services to enable smart grids, smart utilities, smart cities, and smart buildings. Andreas is an award-winning engineer, speaker, author, editor, and executive. He is globally recognized by IEEE as one of the early developers of the smart grid concept and technology, having defined the term smart grid on March 5, 2004. He championed Austin Energy's industry-leading smart grid program design and implementation from 2003 to 2010, and he also architected the Pecan Street project in 2009. And... He's received over 35 industry awards for his contributions and successes. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Andreas Carvalho, CEO at CMG Consulting, professor of innovation, smart grid godfather, and smart grid author. Andreas, welcome to The Climate Champions. Well, then, thank you for having me. It's an honor to join your prestigious podcast, and I look forward to our conversation. Oh, well, thank you, sir. We've known each other a long time. We were early day smart gridders. That's right. The, the, the original tribal smart gridders that really lit up the world on fire. Back in the day, back in the day. Yeah. When it comes to climate change, what was your motivating moment when you felt you had to join the fight? I'm an engineer. You know, I'm a geeky guy. And to me, 
I've always had this sort of thought process about human beings. And I, when I think about human beings and what, how we behave and how we grow our cities, our societies, and I think of us as a virus. You know, we're very viral. <laughs> we're a virus. And we conquer and take over things in our path to progress and civilization. We really left quite a mark on everything we touch. When you go to the beach, you see the plastic everywhere. You see, I mean, it's just amazing, right? This is not this week or last week. I remember since I grew up, you know, going with my parents to trip and seeing the impact that humans have on the environment. It's just careless. In particular, in 2006 and seven, things were heating up and I had already come up with the term smart grid and been working on it since 2004. I got invited to a several conferences in New York by some of the energy and venture capital, private equity folks that were trying to figure out what was happening really with you know this whole notion of the new power grid and renewable energy, carbon sequestration, and can we do something about it? How organized could we be? How much would it cost? Blah, blah, blah. It was then that I realized that what I was working on and but I thought it was a cool journey at Austin Energy. We're transforming the utility. You know, so we kind of stumble into the smart grid. You know, I think of the smart grid for energy to what an ERP is in the financial world, right? In the old days of the financial world, you had stovepipes of things going on in the in the sort of the cash management of a corporation. And these ledgers were not integrated. The guy who did treasury and managed cash and borrowed money, never talked to the guy who did account receivables, never talked to the guy who did accounts payable. And all these accounting things were separated. When an enterprise resource planning came about with several European companies that led the way, then SAP and, and then you know, Oracle, J.D. Edwards, many others, they basically integrated all these modules, right? and all these ways of managing your balance sheet and your income statement. So you can actually see as an enterprise, oh my God, finally I can see when I do something over here, there's all these impacts over here that I never thought of before. And so the smart grid is kind of the same thing. Traditionally, the generation guys never talked to the transmission guys, never talked to the distribution guys, let alone the metering guys, or even the customer care guys. For the first time, when the smart grid comes about, you are forcing everybody to come into this room and, okay, well, what role do you play? Who owns the data? Who, who is responsible for this? Or, so all of a sudden, they need to coordinate, they need to collaborate, right? So now you have it on smart cities. Smart city concept is forcing cities, which you know sort of work together, but they're really a conglomerate of 30, 40, 50 departments. And the departments that have the money don't talk to the departments, don't have any money. And now you will need to become a smart city, and it's the same thing. Now you're forced to integrate, to have a holistic strategy, to think long-term, to think about the customer engagement, the customer experience, right? And so this journey of repackaging how we deliver services and technology driven by what I would call you know, platform offerings is really what we have been witnessing with things like, you know, from the early days of, Windows and ERPs and even the internet is a great example of a platform that has forced all kinds of things to talk together and collaborate like never before. You said we were a virus, the human race. Yes. 
Why, yeah. Yeah. why is climate change mitigation personal to you? You know, I had the opportunity of working at Microsoft in my early days. And I, you know, kind of left Microsoft in 89 and went to do my own journey. And, and no regrets, super successful. If I would have stayed at Microsoft, I probably would have, you know, another hundred million in my bank account. But I, you know, I have a lot of folks that I'd hired that are still there and I keep connected and we're, you know, friends on Facebook and we're connected on LinkedIn and, and I keep taps with folks and we, you know, we kind of connect once in a while. So recently I went to Microsoft research CTO style gathering in February in Seattle. And I say that, you know, I'm always keeping track of what Bill is doing and what the Microsoft guys are doing. I like the new CEO, Satya. I think he's a brilliant dude and has really, you know, brought back everything that Microsoft had to offer and then some. When a lot of people kind of had written off Microsoft. But Microsoft had recently done a study and they have a whole team of folks working on climate. They probably have probably something like 3,000 people working on climate. And they did some research that they're sharing with the world. They're the first company who has put the stake in the ground and said that by 2050, they're basically going to go carbon negative and eliminate all or mitigate, you know, by planting trees and what have you. They're going to mitigate all the carbon footprint that they generated since the company was founded in 1975. So they're going for the total as opposed to just That's zero right. for the year they're in, right? That's right. They're, they're going for the total. I mean, so there is no other company that I know of who's made that claim and, and who's actually putting the money where their mouth is. So Microsoft made that decision in a quarterly report announcement in their December quarter publicly to the world, driven from the following facts. According to Microsoft scientists, there is a 60% probability that in the next 10 years, starting in 2020, January of 2020, so by January of 2030, that we will cross a line where we will increase either one or one and a half degrees of temperature of the planet, and it would be irreversible, the damage. And we'll start an incredible spiral. And so the damage is quantified by the fact that we generate as a planet on average 40 gigatons a year of CO2. If we add another 400 gigatons of CO2 in the next 10 years, we will cross that line and it will be irreversible. We really don't know what the consequences are. You could take a stake of, well, the world's gonna end and we'll be toast in 10 seconds, and you could say nothing is gonna happen, right? Or somewhere in between. Now, as an engineer, to me, and I'm not really religious about this as it relates to politics, and I'm probably not the best person in the world to discuss politics, because you know I'm kind of apolitical when it comes to these platforms and these things. But as an engineer, to me, that is an interesting challenge, right? Because when you think about it, I mean, how do we make electrons? Most people don't know, right? But the traditional way of how we make the majority of the electrons is we take some kind of fuel, nuclear, coal, natural gas, wood, oil, whatever. We boil water, we create steam, we push the steam through a turbine that generates electrons, and then we ship the electrons through cables wherever we want them to go. Now think about that. Where is the innovation of boiling water? So when people think about solar or geothermal or wind or ocean wave or any of the other transformational 
ways of creating that electron, those are exciting, right? Because we have been boiling water for forever and there is no innovation in boiling water. And as an engineer, we should be able to do better. And the other way that I think about all this challenge, Lee, is the following. Everything we see, the chair you're sitting on, the desk you're touching and resting your arms, this is all energy storage. It's solar energy storage. The sun provides for the trees, for the wood, for the compression of the earth, for the movement of the wind, for the movement of the oceans, the gravity. So everything that we are leveraging is really created by the sun. Some people call it renewable energy. Some people call it non-renewable. This is all labels attached to space and time and sort of marketing nomenclatures that are really irrelevant. In the end, everything we're dealing with, everything we're touching, it's a function of energy that cannot be by the loss of energy created or destroyed, so only transformed. And all that energy that we're using comes from the sun. There are different ways of that energy being harnessed, right? The oil is just a bunch of dinosaurs that got fossilized over the last five million years. How do they grow up? They grew up eating trees, and the trees grew up from the sun and photosynthesis and so on. So this vicious conversation about right or wrong, left, whatever, it's just a fact that we don't have enough knowledge. We don't have enough engineering innovation to really get to where we need to go, which is Star Trek, BBM, Scotty, teleportation, not have a carbon footprint, do things the right way. We need a dilithium crystal to store all the energy, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> when you meet people that don't understand that all the use of these fossil fuels that have been put there, like you said, dinosaurs millions of years ago, putting it all into the atmosphere basically at once mm -hmm. is creating a greenhouse effect and causing the climate to change. Sure. And yeah. you meet people that don't believe that. How do you try to convince them that this is something we should worry about? If the world had no consequences, then the laws of physics that we live in would not exist. So whatever you're doing in terms of having a carbon footprint in terms of what you do, what you use, how you like, when you think about it, again, burning wood to make fire, what we eat, like cattle. So all those things have consequences. Civilization, unfortunately, is all led by perpetuating a construct that had worked before. Most people that live in the planet do not understand the construct that they live in and why it happens the way it happens. So I've always said, for example, that if we eliminated five things of our diet, we would be longer, get rid of CO2, and probably get rid of cancer and many other things. No more sugar, no more wheat, no more coffee, no more salt, no more cattle, no more steak. If you got rid of those five things, we would be living 300 years, we would have no water problems, we wouldn't have any CO2 problems. So in that sense, the Indians got it right because they don't eat meat. So some cultures got it right. But we are harvesting in the Western world all these things because this is the life that we have created. And we are teaching others to emulate what we do. So go back to the Paris Accord or what have you, right? I mean, what is the, the essence of the believers and non-believers of that deal? Well, the believers of that deal say that we must lead the world and we must show the example and make the sacrifices to do what's right. The non-believers of that, of course, say, wait a minute, 
you're asking us to do that, but you're not really have a way to enforce what India and China and all the other Brazil and all the other up and coming economies are going to do. And if they don't do it, if you're not going to enforce them and police them and penalize them for doing the wrong thing, why should we be suffering, right? I mean, that's really the essence of that argument. And the concept is that we are all wrong. All of us are wrong. The way we live is unsustainable. All you have to do is just run the map. We're going to run out of water. We're going to run out of land. If we add another 7 billion people to the planet, we can't feed them. Right now, we are ADM, ConAgra, John Deere, all these companies that are trying to figure out how to leverage 5G and IoT to be more productive. They have a challenge. The challenge is very simple. And this is back to the Microsoft numbers. These 400 gigatons that we're adding, 40 gigatons a year that we're adding in the next 10 years, how do you stop adding those gigatons when you're adding 2 billion more people to the planet? when everybody wants to be like the United States. This is the challenge. Listen to the ag thinking from that. The ag guys say that today the United States feeds roughly 25% of the population of the planet for our beans and our cattle and whatever we export. So in order for the United States to maintain the market share of the next 2 billion people on the planet and feed them on trade, we need to increase the yield, the production of the grain, the production of the fields, 35%. And we don't have enough water to get there. And so these are real challenges. Forget the religious aspects of it. I'll tell people, look, we are heading towards the cliff, the entire planet. The way we're doing things is unsustainable. All of it, what we eat, what we drink, the energy we use. Hey, except for the coffee, I'm pretty good. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the, you, you've always been a pretty healthy guy. I just think that a lot of those products are, we could get into the whole pharma thing, but I think that there is a construct that has been created to keep us sick. So I introduced you, and you do a lot of things. Can you talk yeah. about the things you do day-to-day to help mitigate climate change? Well, I think everything I do contributes to educating people and finding the better, better ways of reinventing ourselves. So I'll, I'll start with CMG. So CMG is a consulting firm. It has 17 partners and we do a strategic planning focus on smart utilities, smart energy, smart cities, smart buildings. This is all driven by the fact that I'm a big believer on the industrial revolutions because my first job out of school was to be the product manager for Windows. Let's go change the world. Industry 4.0, it's all about the digitalization of industry. If you think about consumer electronics, if you think about some elements of the home, if you think about telecommunications, if you think about airlines, if you think about Wall Street banking, retail, you think about Amazon and retail and shipping delivery, FedEx, UPS, those businesses, those industries are highly digitized. They're not 100% digitized, but they're highly digitized. If you think in contracts to construction, you are still framing, Houses with two by fours, sheet rock, how we pour concrete and make pools in the water business and one pipe at a time, or how we just lay down the grid underground or overground and how we build things. Think about all these other industries, right? Rail and the auto industry probably halfway in the middle. Half of it in its supply chain is pretty old fashioned. 
and then the cars themselves, the end product is pretty sophisticated. The whole world is getting digitized. And so we need to reinvent. Why does it take 18 months to build a building? Why can it take 90 days? Why do we make buildings out of the materials we make them? Why are the walls and the foundations fixed? Why can't you turn everything into how we make computers and cell phones? I want the walls to have the copper instead of being wires that are hanging. I want the wall to be printed like a motherboard with all the connectivity. And I want this room to open up because I have a conference now. And I want this room to move the walls. And I don't want to lose connectivity and anything. So we need to reinvent, you know, why are windows square or why do they have a frame or why are doors rectangular? Why do we have door knobs? And, you know, think about COVID-19. What's the worst thing you can do about COVID-19 in doors? I don't want to touch the knob. You know, who touched that last knob? Why aren't the doors today? We're back like to Star a, Trek. First, it, first it's it, lithium crystals and now it's auto opening doors. That's right. Exactly. We need to reinvent everything, Lee. So CNG is all about helping people figure that out, create the right business case, a business plan, find the right use cases, find the right adoption of the stakeholders, and help people build that journey. Just something that we do. Outside of CMG, I work with a company called Arctic House. And after I wrote the Advanced Smart Grid, which became a bestseller, I became an editor of Empower Engineering books and telecom books and smart building books. So I've now published 38 books and I work with some 300 authors worldwide about the latest and greatest stuff. So it's pretty cool from making cars to planes to new technologies on networking or building materials or what have you. And then the other thing that I do is I worked at the University of Texas State, which is a San Marcos, south of Austin. And at Texas State University is a 40,000 student body with 1,700 faculty. We created a strategic plan for the university to grow their research and development portfolio to $200 million a year additionally. And so they made me an offer that I couldn't refuse to join them, you know, not full time because I'm still running CMG and doing a bunch of things, but it, you know, a significant part of my time with them. And so now I'm a full-time professor. I teach one class a semester, one on building a smart grid and the other one on telecommunications. And then I, the biggest thing that I do is I run a consortium called CEDAR that stands for Connected Infrastructure. And we are reinventing how research is done to basically enable what we do in planning on the CMG side of the house. We're working right now with, uh, we're building nine living labs. So we're doing 100 acres It'll be a million square feet. We just commissioned 200,000 square feet of construction. Everything is going to be in microgrids for power, cooling, heating, waste, water, recycled water, telecommunications. We're going to have two 5G experimental licenses. We're going to have autonomous vehicles in the 100 acres. We're going to have all kinds of facilities. Every building will be net zero energy, zero water, zero waste. And then we are connected to campus, which is four miles north of where we are. There, there are 500 acres there. And then we have another campus on Round Rock, which is 37 miles north, where we have another 100 acres. We're going to have a, a shuttle system for testing all kinds of things, from batteries to autonomous stuff and AI. We're working with some 100 companies, including all the big names. We've got Amazon, Google, GE, ABB, Siemens, all of the above. You told us a little bit about your past with regard to Microsoft. Do you want to fill in some of the blanks? What other details got you to where you are today? So I left Microsoft to join a company called Santa Cruz Operation, which was on 10% by Microsoft, to go and fulfill 
that part of the strategy that Bill had created about controlling all the operating systems and having the graphical user interface and all the operating systems. So Microsoft had DOS and Windows, which I worked on, and then we did the deal with IBM that brought us OS2 and Presentation Manager on top of OS2. And then Microsoft had licensed in 1979 the rights from AT&T to take Unix into the Intel chipset. Microsoft was too busy working on what it was working, so basically they delegated that to a company called Santa Cruz Operation in Santa Cruz, California, the South Silicon Valley, to do that work. So I went to be a product manager for the products that were Presentation Manager X, it was called, to run on top of ACO Unix. That project never happened. Sort of computer religious things got in the way. Uh, ACO went away and joined some OSF, the Open Software Foundation. It was founded by Compaq, Hewlett Packard, Digital Equipment, SEO, and many other players. And basically, this was the Unix world banding together against the Microsoft thread. And so PMX never happened. It never saw the light of day. SEO uh, released a protocol, Open Desktop, based on the Open Software Foundation. We know what happened. Microsoft actually won and beat everybody else. So I, would, I felt like I was in no man's land at one point. So I ended up working at Borland for Philippe Kahn, who's a genius. So, so I worked in the software space for about eight years. And then digital equipment hired me away from Scotts Valley. So digital was trying to do the PC, personal computer, for the fifth time. And we built a $2.5 billion company making personal computers in 36 months, something like that. It was fairly successful. It kind of cemented my career as somebody who went from being a product manager to a GM who was really a product guy who understood market segmentation and market trends and could assemble teams quickly. Then I was hired away by Philips to do the same in the cell phone industry in the 90s. And so I built a $3 billion company for Philips making cell phones. They built the same, the first CDMA phones in the United States, also built PDMA phones and analog phones and GSM phones. And then in late 99, early 2000, decided to leave Philips and do startups. So I did four startups in telecom, uh, two as an officer and two as a CEO. Sold them all, made reasonable money, but not enough money to stop working or doing anything like that, even though I don't think I could stop working because I love learning. So that's what got me to where I am now. Then in 2003, I joined Austin Energy as CIO, CTO. And the Austin Energy team had all the vision that we're talking about. They were dreaming back in November of 2002. You know, they were talking about electric vehicles, vehicles discharging back onto the grid, batteries moving around, balancing the grid. They were talking about fixed energy storage. They were talking about solar PV panels. They were talking about demand response on steroids. They were talking about virtual power plants. We were talking about distributed energy resources. These guys were talking about all this stuff in Austin, 2002. I just landed there because I was friends with the CEO socially. They needed somebody to basically go build stuff. I became the guy who built all the stuff. And so I was there for about eight years and I deployed $4 billion worth of technology in those eight years. Solar farms, wind farms, microgrids, infrastructure, and, and you know, electric vehicles and, and response thermostats for every home. You name it, we did it. So you talked about one of your setbacks, at least I interpreted it as somewhat of a setback at Santa Cruz. It was, it was a dead end. <laughs> Do you want to talk about other setbacks that you had? Yeah, I would say that was the only dead end that I had to take a detour because I was, you know, I was a Microsoft guy on a mission to do something that 
got all derailed. And so I needed to find another journey. So I met Philippe Khan and he, he put me, he took me from being a product manager to being a general manager, trusted me, gave me all kinds of, you know, resources and, and management and where I worked for a guy named Doug Anton, which was a brilliant manager and a salesman. And he was amazing and taught me everything I, I know about selling and promoting and building a brand and things like that. You mentioned a lot of great things that you've done. What are you most proud of? People that know me now know Austin Energy and the Smart Grid. So the godfather of the Smart Grid is probably the biggest thing that everybody talks about. I think that what I'm doing at Texas Day is going to be 10 times bigger than what we did with the Smart Grid. Because we're going to reinvent research. If you think about the movie Tron, how we go from physical state to digital state, that's what we're going to make happen here. So the best, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. But when people look at their resume at, at a glance, they stop and want to talk about Microsoft. They want to know how nice and how smart or how friendly was Bill in the early days. You talked about Microsoft's work kind of predicting the future. You said you didn't know what that necessarily would mean, all that carbon in the atmosphere, all those greenhouse gases. But can you talk about what your vision is 10, 20, 30 years from now with regards to what the world's like from a climate perspective? I think the world that we know and the world that we want, we have this balance and we can still get on a plane and go see an untouched island. It's kind of a fantasy that humans have about interacting with the world. Is there a place to escape? You know, a mountain to climb, you're a climber, like things like that, right? I think that the challenge of that world which requires environments to be pristine and national parks and pieces of land to be untouched, is that, you know, we are a virus. <laughs> and, we're, and we're going from 7 billion to 14 billion and from 14 billion to 21 billion. And at some point, some of these movies that predict the sadness of we virus getting along, it's gonna be a challenge. It's gonna be a real challenge. So somehow, in that journey, we, you know, we have always, the, here's the other thing, right? And, I mean, you're a pretty spiritual guy and, and have a pretty good compass. And, you know, the formula to do that, to be good, to collaborate, to get along, it's very simple, right? I mean, don't mess with people. Treat people like you want to be treated, right? And respect everybody. That's very simple, right? I mean, why can everybody do that all the time? I have no idea, right? <laughs> but it seems to be pretty basic. To get along right so i tend to be a person that i'm never agitating you know i'm if i'm talking about technology and innovation and things like that then i'm loud and, but when it comes to these vicious things about haves and have nots so for example one of my latest ideas i don't know if you follow me on linkedin i basically put out the formula on how we eliminate poverty and any retirement shortfall for every american going forward and it's very simple. Data is the new oil. So data has a price, has a value, has a price, right? So, and when I say data, I'm not talking about the data for your call center. Just take a human being. Take all the disenfranchised, poor people in America and the homeless people in America. By the way, that is a total sore spot with me as a human being. The fact that the richest of the rich in society can go to bed every night and letting that happen every day drives me crazy. Data today has a price in the market of advertising, corporate advertising, 
and all those things, data has a price. And the price of that data is roughly $25 for two gigabytes of data. A normal human being can generate roughly 10 terabytes of data a year. So that would be $125,000 salary. So today, you and I surrender our data to Google, to Chrome, to Facebook, to Instagram, wherever we go, we surrender our data to everybody. What if there was an actual repository that I control that acted like the gill of my data that then people subscribe to get to my data because they don't need my data for my age or my weight or type or my race type or my health style or what I eat or where I live, right? Whatever it is, right? And all that data, we're already creating that. We're putting ourselves all these technologies, you know, the watch to track the heartbeat, right? All this data is getting created, but I'm not making a dime out of that data. And I should. I should make a dime out of that data. And so that's my proposition. Create a personal data economy in a repository. And everybody should put their data in there. It should be used blockchain. And everybody owns their data. And then you allow who wants to subscribe to your data. And then you can pay. I don't want to debate this too much. But I think one of the problems is that it might be that some people's data are worth more to the world than others. So you still might have the same division of haves and haves nots. I think that you're right in the sense that some data types will be better. So if I have some unique arrhythmia in my heart, I should get paid more because I have a unique heart that will help all the researchers to find a better solution. Problem is that not even that person is getting compensated for that data that is helping all the research. In fact, there are many cases, well-known cases, of patients that are suing existing prestigious universities and institutions because they have stolen the data and done research with that data and monetized that data for themselves. Yeah. And this happens every day, and it should stop happening because data, if you believe in copyrights, you believe in software, if you believe in authorship, the data that comes from you belongs to you. The pandemic is in its fifth month now. How do you think that affected the climate change vision? I will always go down in history as being an optimist. Everything around me that happens, I always see the good in it and the opportunities on it that can come out of it. So I'm driving the utilization. That's you know my last push. It's I'm all about the utilization of everything that I'm involved in. So COVID-19 has accelerated the need for digitalization and automation in businesses, and it, it has accelerated the adoption of customers and users of that digitalization. So take, for example, the Zoom phenomenon. We have had video conferencing. You and I have been doing video <laughs> conferencing know. all our careers. But I never did it for personal, and it's actually... It, it's great using it. It's really a that's fantastic right. enabler. That, that's right. Well, so, so again... You and I were experts on using WebEx and GoToMeeting and you name it, Skype, right? There have been products that have been around for 40, 50 years. But now it's not only you and me knowing how to use it. Every single human being on the planet has had to use Zoom or some other tool in the last five months. So that, the acceleration that comes from that, that's just one tool, right? Let alone all the other things that are driving automation in a huge way. So what would have taken five to 10 years in some 
segments of the population, in some school districts, in some types of industries, what have you, has happened in the last five months. So we are bringing, accelerating, bringing forward into us this sort of the future of what's going to happen. So now new companies are emerging, new business models are happening because there is an understanding of what this is, right? It's just like go back to the first time everybody saw the iPhone. Everybody's kind of like, oh, whatever, who cares? And it turned out to be an amazing platform. Keep on the word of platform, right? And my career has been all about being part of phenomenal platform opportunities. So I think COVID-19, while a lot of people have died and there's all kinds of cases and we probably don't know if we'll ever get a vaccine, I doubt it, and how we're going to deal with it going forward, how long this is going to take in terms of the new normal or the new new normal, whatever you want to call it. But clearly when it comes to digitalization and automation, so I can tell you, for example, my business on the CMG side has exploded in the last five months. All my customers are accelerating automation because they don't want more people touching more things and interacting with more things and they want more automation. How does that map to the climate change challenge? Electric vehicles have won. EVs have won. When you look at the, the CO2 map where it comes from, right? If you can take 30% of all the vehicles in the world and make them electric, we're done. We won. And that's going to happen. Why do you think that's going to happen? There are many reasons why. The largest reason why it's going to happen is because autonomous vehicles are going to happen. And autonomous vehicles need to be electric. If you understand the, the draw of the LiDAR cameras needed to drive an autonomous vehicle that a 60, 70 year old retired person like you will demand so that you don't have to be driven by your son to go to the park to hang out with your friends anymore. And you will demand this car. When it's time for your son to fight about taking your driver's license away from you, you will demand this vehicle. And this vehicle cannot function with a 12-volt battery. This vehicle needs a battery pack. So electric vehicles are being driven by autonomous vehicles, which will be driven by just Freedom of the single independence of humans is a done deal. Elon took a risk when he did it. He cracked the code on the formula. His company is one of the most successful companies in the world in terms of changing, bringing new technology, transforming an industry, and so on. He will get the credit at some point of all the things that he has done. It's more than just electric vehicles, what he has done. Forget SpaceX, just Tesla alone manufacturing, design. I mean, they have reinvented a gazillion things. These patents are out there for people to copy. There are now, as I understand it, some 100 EV startups in the world trying to emulate Elon. Episode 51 of The Climate Champions is not an interview. It's just me rapping about Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. So you have to check that out. (laughs) Okay. I talk about a lot of this. Is there anything you want to ask me? When you look at the body of work that you have put together and the subjects that you have talked to, where are we? Are people talking about how to solve the problem with, I would say, the clarity that I'm articulating? Or are people just afraid and freaking out? Or are people trying to find the answers? Because I am a solutions-driven person and I'm trying to solve problems. I'm not getting into the why and the whining and, oh my God, somebody took my cheese. That's not me. The majority of people have a very balanced perspective. They do understand the risks, whether they want to talk about it 
as much or not, they know that we are in deep trouble, that we do have a challenge in front of us, that maybe we're a virus that's about to be put out of our misery if we don't do something and change our behavior. People get that and they're nervous about it because it's quite a challenge. On the other hand, most people have some understanding of the efforts that we've already made, the technologies we already have, and the potential to beat this before it beats us. Usually the people I talk to say they're an optimist or a pessimist, and that mm -hmm. determines what they believe their future is, but they all see the challenge and the potential future is very similarly. Yeah, so I would say the challenge of CO2 and decreasing the 400 gigatons that we're gonna create because we burn things, we're still doing the same things. The two single most important things to avoid that gigaton creation is I would say, if I was God for one day, I would stop the consumption of red meat, you know, cattle, and I would force transition to electric vehicles. Those two things will cut the number in half. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Thank you for having me and, uh, you know, wish you all the best in your journey and hopefully we'll meet again. And if you ever want to write a book on technology, let me know. You know, <laughs> I publish anybody who, who has an interesting topic. So if you want to write a book with the math behind climate change and all that, happy to publish it with you. <laughs> That's very nice. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. Andreas thinks that one day the earth will fire us because we, we're humans, we are a virus. The lack of company integration, it's his gripe. Enterprise resource planning to destroy the stovepipe. Listen, I like coffee, but it's not my fault. I can do without wheat and cows and sugar and salt. I liked how you sang your sustainability song. The challenge for us is we're all wrong. He started out working for Microsoft. He ended up in a career that was much more lofty. <laughs> During his career, he thought phones were the bomb. He ended up starting companies in telecom and traditional gas cars. They're just done because autonomous EVs They've already won. That's very good. That's very good. Hey, you're a rapper too. Huh? You gotta, you gotta come in and rap with my kids. I have a 23 and a 19 year old. They have a company. They rap and they make money doing it. <laughs> awesome. They're poets. They're next generation poets. I really appreciated how blunt Andreas was about his opinions. Let's see. Humans are all wrong. We are a virus. We can live to 300 if we give up salt, wheat, beef, coffee, and sugar. And my favorite, EVs have one. I'm with them on that one and maybe the others as well. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Andreas has over 30 years of experience in the energy, telecommunications, computer, and software industries. Since 1992, he's held P&L responsibilities and senior executive titles 
while being responsible for the strategy, development, and commercialization of over 40 products at startups like Proximetry, Gridnet, Hillcast, and leading global companies like Philips Electronics, Digital Equipment, and Borland. And to top it off, Andreas started his career as a Windows product manager at Microsoft. It's really incredible how much Andreas has done and is doing to advance ideas and technology. We joked about dilithium crystals, sliding doors, and reconfiguring rooms on the fly with moving walls, but Andreas is extremely aggressive in trying to help the human condition and mitigate climate change.